0: to us here. Um, We are starting a new sermon series, and if you're watching us online, thanks for for cluing in here. We're glad that you did. Uh, We're starting a sermon series called Words to Live By, and uh, you know, I think about that phrase a lot whenever we we say that. Is it just kind of a flippant phrase, or or what does that mean, words to live by, and, and who gives us these words to live by? Uh, most of the time, our parents give us words to live by, and, and sometimes they're right, and sometimes they're, they're really good advice. I, I recall a story of a, of a lady. She was uh, 47 years old. She was a successful attorney, a junior partner in a law firm. She had two children, ages 10, a little boy and an 8-year-old little girl. Uh, and every time they would ask mom how old she was, uh, she would say 27, of course. Uh, and so she had a lot of 27th birthdays. And so the 10-year-old kind of curious and the 8-year-old girl also curious, they begin to believe that mom was not quite telling them the truth. And so they rifled through her purse and found her ID and found out that mom was not 27, she was in fact 47 years old. The little boy didn't handle this well, so he went and uh, he hid in a place in the attic where he liked to go whenever things were troubling him and bothering him. And the mom began to search for him, and she finally found him. And he was crying and distraught, and she was, she, she was heartbroken. And she, she just said, Baby, I'm so sorry. I apologize for lying to you. And he said, Mom, I'm not mad at you because you lied to me. I'm upset because you're old. <laughs> now we all mourn things a little differently, don't we? We all, we all take bad news in a little different ways. We all... We all look at perspective differently. I think when we're younger, we look at things one way, and when we're older, we look at them a little different, and some mountains become molehills and vice versa. But, but we all have a different way of processing some sort of loss, and that could be a loss of property, it could be a loss of opportunity, it could be a loss of trust or faith, it could be the loss of a loved one, but we all have to process that in some way, and we usually use the term mourning for that. I, I want to tell you the story of, of, of a, a guy named Martin... Um, uh, Sh- 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 Shrikini I think his name Shrini I'll call him that uh, This is Martin up here and, and you may notice Martin there And he's not just waving and saying hi He's actually got his hand up testifying before Congress He was called before Congress many times When, when Martin was in his uh, late 20s He purchased the rights to a drug called Darapim And Darapim used to be $13 per pill Until Martin got hold of it Martin raised the price to $750 per pill uh, based upon the agreement by his uh, board of directors for the pharmaceutical company that he became the CEO of. Martin made millions of dollars. Now, there's no real purpose for him to have raised the price from $13 to 750 other than the fact that he could. There's no new research or development for this drug. It hasn't changed in, in more than 30 years um, they're not doing anything else with it. It's, it's um, anti-parasitic, uh, and it's also used to, to treat different things in the body. I won't go into all of that. But, but Martin decided that he was going to raise the price from $13 to $750. And so he was called before Congress many times, three times in fact, uh, and asked to testify regarding why he did that. Now, Congress knew they had no actual legal ability to force him to make any of those changes. They did accuse him of price gouging, which I think that's a fair accusation, but Martin didn't actually break the law. He, he worked within the confines of that. So he makes millions of dollars, and then he decides, well, look, if I'm making millions of dollars, I'll just spend this millions of dollars any way that I want. He bought two. Uh, he was into rap music, so it, he ended up being coined a pharma bro. That was his name. And so he bought two one single time presses of vinyl from two very well-known rap stars. Uh, I think he paid uh, tens of thousands of dollars each for them. But he used money that he actually made from the company. So it wasn't really personal money. It was money that he made from the company to buy these things. And then he said, well, I'll just in, I'll create an investment firm. And so he got people to invest and he began to do some fraudulent things, and people started losing money, and when they found out about it, he says, well, I'll make this right. I'll take money out of my pharmaceutical company, and I'll pay back these investors so they don't lose any of their money, and then I'm therefore absolved. Nobody got hurt. Well, Martin here, who called Congress imbeciles on all three, pled the fifth every time that he went up to testify. He was prosecuted, and convicted on three counts of fraud and sentenced to seven years of hard labor in federal prison. His board of directors fired him as CEO, obviously, and today, do you know how much the price of that $750 pill is? It's still $750. Martin would go on to say, I don't blame anybody for this. It's my fault, my actions. I did this to myself. In tears before the federal judge asking for a reduced sentence. The judge sentenced him to the maximum that he could on three counts of fraud, seven years of hard labor. Martin was surely distressed about this. He mourned about this a lot, I'm certain of that. You see, we all have to deal with the things that we do in our lives. We have to take account for the decisions that we make, and those, those decisions have consequences. And they not only impact us, is what the judge actually told him, was one of the reasons why I'm sentencing you to the max is not because of what you did specifically, but in doing the things that you did, it caused harm to others. People couldn't afford these drugs that they once could at $13. And then the insurance companies pass it on. You know how all that works, right? And so he mourned that because he had got caught. He was going to prison. He was losing his money. He got fired from his job. And I liken that to this next picture here that I wanted you to see this visual of, of dandelions. Now, do you, do you all just love dandelions? Phil, I know you love them. I, I know they're, just, they're, they're great for rice farming, aren't they? Dandelions are kind of pretty when they're in the, in the bloom of, of, the, of the yellow, but then they turn to those little white things, and then your kids like to pick them up and blow them, and, they go, and they're all kind of cool and neat until you have to pick them in your yard, and you can't hardly get rid of them, can you? Now, many of us, instead of putting chemicals on the yard, our goal for dandelions is you just run them over with a lawnmower and you just keep doing that, right? And then before long, the, the, the dandelions, they take over your entire yard. And so you know that the only way to really get rid of those things is to dig them up from the roots. You have to kill the roots. You can't just deal with the flower on that. Which is the same thing we do whenever we try to, to, to reconcile what we have done in our own lives, in our own hearts, and even how we deal with our own sin when it comes to our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Like the mom who lies to her kids, she thought it was one thing and the kid was bothered about something else. Like the young man who made millions of dollars by raising the prices on drugs for no purpose at all except just to make more money. Once he got caught and realized that he was a pretty bad dude, nobody respected him or liked him and he was losing everything, he had to deal with that loss. But unfortunately we sometimes do the same thing with the dandelions when we deal with loss or hurt or anything of that matter. We just cut the tops off and we don't worry about the roots and then it comes back later on. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue the Sermon on the Mount and we're going through this a little bit slower because I want us to really enjoy what Christ is teaching to his disciples. Now remember there were large crowds there and uh, the crowds gathered around him but the disciples came to him and so he's teaching to a little smaller group. It, It probably was not the 12, it was probably larger than that. And he's teaching to this smaller group of the disciples, those who follow Jesus. And he had just said to them, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in 5 verse 4, he says, blessed, excuse me, uh, that's last week's sermon. (sighs) He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, many a times when we think about mourn, we do think about loss. And I gave you some examples of that. And many times when we talk about loss, we think about a loss of life or loss of a loved one. And I want to tell you, it's important that we do process that mourning and that we do go through the process of grief and we go through the process of all the stages of that. Now, if you've ever studied the stages of grief, I want, to, I want you to keep in mind that that is actually designed for, for the person who is in the process of loss, not for the person who has lost if that makes sense to you at all. It's not, it's not really designed for those of us who, is, who are experiencing that loss, but that person who's going to be impacted by it the most, or the person who maybe has accepted that their death is imminent. But when you look at what it means to mourn, we often cry, we, we, uh, we shut down, we internalize, we push out, we act out in different ways. We all mourn things differently. And so upon first reading of this verse, you might see, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You might think of the good shepherd coming to you and saying, oh, it's okay. Everything's going to be all right. You might think uh, of this Jesus who's just there to hug you when you've had a bad day. And that's okay to think that way, but that's not actually what he's saying in this context. What he's talking about is the citizenship of heaven and what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven. So you have to back up to verse 3 there and it says, Blessed are, are, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And those who are in the kingdom of heaven are going to display a certain level of quality and characteristics. And some of those qualities and characteristics are, are those who are, 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 are belonging to the king of kings are going to mourn whenever they sin against him. Whenever they break his heart, whenever they violate God's laws, whenever that relationship is broken down. And so while it's true we must mourn the loss of someone, what Jesus is specifically talking about in this verse is when you you mourn the sin that you have executed, that you have done to him. And when you mourn that sin, you will be comforted. And the, the real thing about that is not just a matter of just mere confession It's not just a matter of saying, yes, it's me, I'm caught, I did that, I rose the price of something to $750 didn't need to be, or I lied about something that I shouldn't have done, or I stole something, or I said something about somebody, or to somebody. It's not just about saying those things from a personal responsibility, it's understanding that how that, that, that offense impacted your relationship with God, and how it impacted your relationship with others, to a point to where you mourn that loss of relationship with the king of kings and with one another. Uh, we might also understand, too, that people only mourn things that, that they actually lose. And so sometimes things go bad, but they don't actually mourn those things. They're just kind of, oh, yeah, well, whatever. Because they fail to recognize how it impacts others. Let me give you a couple of examples from Scripture. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel, you may know this story, where Cain actually got upset about his brother, and he killed his brother. And so God called him before him, and he says, where's your brother? Where's, am I my, my brother's keeper? God knew that he had actually killed his brother because he was jealous and upset and enraged about him, but, but Cain really wasn't mourning the fact that he had killed his brother. He was upset that he got called on the carpet for it. He was upset that God knew about it, except that God called him out. And so his mourning was not the loss of his brother or the sin that he committed, but if you see right here in verses 13 and 14, Cain said to the Lord, "'My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden.'" I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And all Cain's really concerned about is me. He never once says, I'm so sorry I killed my brother. I'm sorry that he's dead. I'm sorry I broke mom and dad's heart. Now they only got me and Seth. I hope things work out for Seth a little bit better because I'm not a very good son and the good son's gone. He never said any of that. He just said, God, your punishment on me is too harsh, and if anybody finds me, they're going to harm me. And it was all about him. And so he wasn't mourning what he had done, not realizing the impact of his actions upon others. He wasn't even mourning how he'd hurt his mom and dad or how he had injured his brother. You might also know that, that, that there's a great story of David in the Bible when he meets with Nathan. And you've probably heard this one too, where David sees Bathsheba, and David is looking out over the rooftops. He sees this beautiful woman. He has her come to him, finds out she's married, and he got her pregnant. And so he sets up for her husband to get killed in battle. And so he goes out, and that happens. He gets killed in battle. His name name was Uriah. He gets killed in battle. And then God calls David to account through the prophet Nathan. And he says to him, hey, man, this isn't the right thing for you to have done. One, you've committed adultery. You've lied. You've murdered. You've done all kinds of things. You've brought other people into your circle of influence because you're the king, and bad things have happened, and you don't seem to really feel that bad about this. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse, uh, verses 12 through 14, God says to him, uh, Nathan says to him through God, for you did this all secretly, but I shall do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Your sin's not going to be hidden. I'm not going to let this go. This isn't just going to be between me and you because the consequences are so much higher, especially because you've not received what you've done well. Then he continues on, verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. I think in some level, David was probably hoping that this would just be final and be over with. But God did the same thing to him that he did to Cain. I'm going to keep you alive. I'm going to let you dwell on this. I'm going to see if you can come to the reality of what you've done and the extent how you've harmed others and how our relationship is damaged. But it's not final. It's not over. We can still repair this if you're willing to do the work. Verse 14, nevertheless, because this deed you have done utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Now this seems like a harsh punishment. This innocent child, God's going to take his life because of what David did. Bathsheba's going to suffer for this because of what David did. She was part of it too, but he was the king and she couldn't say no to him. And so there was mourning and wailing and crying to the point to where David couldn't be consoled by his leaders. It took days and days. He didn't eat. He didn't bathe. He didn't wash his face. He just cried and cried and cried. And it finally got to a point where David understood that this wasn't just what had happened to him, it's what he had done to his God. Now, you're probably wondering why am I going through all this and saying all these things? Because I wonder if you really think seriously about your sin and your life and your relationship with God, do you mourn when you commit sin? Does it really break your heart that you've broken God's heart? Does it really matter to you that you have violated the trust of the Almighty God and probably the trust of those around you? Or does it just matter to you that you've got caught? There's not really a lot of comfort in saying, okay, I got caught and I'm going to spend seven years of hard labor in versus God has forgiven me. Even in David's case, God had forgiven him, but there was a process of mourning because a life had been lost, more than one. So when you consider your sin and your relationship with God, do you mourn your sin against God? Does it really bother you at all? Or do you laugh it off like a mom who lies about her age? Knowing it's still a lie, it's still a violation. Oh, it's a little white lie. It's not anything compared to murdering anybody or or committing adultery. Well, when you start categorizing sin that, that way, I can tell you first and foremost, you don't mourn that as if it is a loss to your relationship with God alone. And so when we see in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted, we ought not be comforted in our sin and won't find comfort outside of our mourning when we truly confess ourselves to God. And so you might be asking, what's the difference between mourning our sin and only mourning the circumstances of our sin? Because that's where most of us really are, for being honest. We only mourn the circumstances of our sin because it's uncomfortable, it's inconvenient, We maybe lost some financial gains. We might have lost a little trust with some people, not really a big deal, didn't like that guy anyway, don't have a problem lying to him. You know, just think about the last solicitor that knocked on your door. Did you tell him the absolute truth, nothing but the truth, so help you, God? Y'all are better people than I am. I don't like that when it happens, but it's still a lie, and it still violates God's heart and breaks for us. So how can we know the difference between the two? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is a great place if we want to spend a little time this morning to understand that. If we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, particularly in verse 10, I'm going to show you the first difference between mourning the sin that breaks God's heart and mourning the consequences of our sin. So chapter 7, verse 10 says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And so all sin actually leads to death. And so if we only feel bad about what we've done, but not who we've harmed, particularly our creator in general, or our creator God as a whole, then we're only going to mourn the consequences of that. And that's only going to lead to more death. It's not going to lead to deliverance. It's not going to lead to victory. It's not going to lead to forgiveness. It's not going to lead to joy. We're going to mourn, but we're only going to mourn our circumstances. We're not going to mourn God's uh, God's broken heart, and we're not going to find the comfort we need in this world, because that's usually how sin begins to snowball. Well, I wasn't comforted by God in this, because you weren't sorry for it. Well, I wasn't comforted in this, or I wasn't comforted in this, because you turned to yet another sin to kind of placate the last one, and, and cover one lie up with the other, or cover one bad example with the other. And so how, how can we fix that? Well, look at the next verse, verse 11 there. For we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church saying, hey, listen, when you really took hold of your sin and the reality of what you had done and how you had made choices and what it did to your relationship with God, we saw these things in you. This godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment at every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. And so there's two types of things we can look at, godly grief and worldly grief. Mourning by the world standards and mourning by God's standard about the sin that we've caused and created and how it's damaged ourselves. Mourning by the world standards, feeling sorry for ourselves for getting caught or for what we have to do to get out of this with, with everybody else, that's only gonna lead to death. It's not gonna lead to true victory and deliverance. It's not going to lead to the comfort that God promises us. But godly grief produces seven different things. And so if, you, or if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to see these seven things that godly grief actually produces in each and every one of us. And we see all of them just kind of brushed over in Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11. Godly grief, when I'm really sorry for what I've done, for the sin that I've committed, for how I violated God's laws, for how I've broken his heart, for how my heart is now broken because I have to deal with this, produces these seven things. Earnestness. Listen, earnestness is simple. Do you actually know what you did? Do you care about what you did? And do you understand how that harmed God? Do you think about God watching every little thing that you do Listening to every lie that you tell, every place that your eyes go that they shouldn't, every place that your hands go that they shouldn't, every place that your money goes where it shouldn't, every place that your, your mind goes that it shouldn't, do, do you really know that that's sinful? Or do you classify some things as just being okay and laugh them off, or just move on about your life because everybody's doing it? You all know if everybody jumped off a bridge, you would too, because everybody's doing that, right? And so if you're earnest about your sin that's going to lead to godly grief, you're going to call your sin out yourself. You're going to recognize what you've done. You're going to know that that is sinful behavior and how that impacted your relationship with God. Well, God didn't really care if I tell one lie. God absolutely cares if you tell one lie. If he knows every hair on your head, if he knows every day that you're going to have on this earth, he cares about all the things in between there. And so if you're truly earnest about finding comfort from God, you're going to mourn every one of those sins with earnestness and know what you've done. Well, the second one is vindication. What, what motives do you have to never do that again? Now, this is one of those things where you look and go, okay, well, I doubt that that Martin there is going to ever hike up the price of drugs again and defraud people. You're probably right. He's never going to have that kind of money again. It may not be because he chose to. It's going to be because it's been chosen for him not to do. And, and there's no vindication in that. The vindication is, is I truly am sorry for what I've done to such a point that I never want to do this again. I don't want to just not get caught again. I never want to break God's heart this way again. I never want to have my heart broken this way again. Many of you are married, and and, and you know what it is to be married for some time. You know what it is to tell a lie to your spouse, and you know what it is to have your spouse lie to you. And it's a really interesting dynamic because some things you kind of let slide because it may not be worth the fight. And other times, you should probably have that fight anyway because it's worth it. But in all reality, if you get the same lie told to you over and over and over again, do you, do you really believe the I'm sorry that finally comes once you've had enough? That person's not vindicated in such a way that they... I've figured out a way to stop committing that sin, to stop telling that same lie over and over again. And so if we're really serious about godly grief, about God comforting us, then we need to mourn sin in such a way that we never do that again. How do we set things in place to make sure we never do that again? And, and one of the ways to do that is the next one is indignation. And when I talk about indignant, I'm talking about hate. I mean that. I hate. Like I hate cold weather, like I hate snakes. Do you hate sin so much that you never want to do that again? Are you indignant about that? When an opportunity to sin stands in front of you or presents itself, are you going to invite it in, think that you can defeat it, or are you going to become indignant in it in such a way that you're going to move past it, you're going to seek out God's counsel, you're going to turn from it and go another way? Are you indignant about sin, or are you just, eh, eh, everybody's doing it, it's not a big deal. I, I got away with it a couple hundred times before. Why should this time be any different? This is how most addiction actually happens is because people are not indignant about their sin. They're indignant about people calling their sin out. And there's a big difference there because they've gotten comfortable wallowing in the pit, in the mess, in the mud, and the yuck, and they've never become indignant about the sin itself, just the circumstances. There's a giant difference there. Look at the next one, fear. Do you really fear God's judgment, his righteous judgment? for what you've done, or is that that fear stronger than your fear of getting caught? See, the fear of the Lord is is the beginning of wisdom. It's the understanding of Him, knowing not just that He knows everything that I'm going to do, He cares about everything that I'm doing and what I'm thinking and what I'm speaking and how I'm acting. It's not just that we're a reflection of Him, if we've called ourselves Christ followers, that we're saying we've made a bad impression upon God. God doesn't really need our help. His character doesn't change based upon our sinfulness. He stays the same, but are we truly afraid of him because he has dominion over our very soul, not just the consequences of this earth? When we talk about purity, especially sexual purity, we talk a whole lot about the the negative consequences of not having a sexually pure life. But what we really miss out is that there's an intimacy issue there. It's a great example because it's extreme because, because we don't want to even think about, oh, this is a bad thing, you could get all these diseases and all this other stuff. What you're missing is that the intimacy between a husband and a wife is reserved for marriage, and God blesses that, and He wants that to be maintained. Just like the intimacy with His creation and the, cre- the created is such a way that when you violate that, are you afraid of losing that intimacy? Are you afraid of not hearing from God anymore? Because here's the worst part about what Romans tells us, that if you continue in that sin, if you're not indignant about it, if you don't fear God, if you just run along with the rest of the world, he may just turn you over to it and let the world have you. In such case, you have a reprobate mind and you no longer register what is going on as sin anymore. It's just part of your everyday routine. And you can't call it a habit. You can't call it an addiction. You have to call it sin. Call it what it is. And if you really fear God, you'll mourn that sin and allow him to comfort you. The next one we see is this longing. What's more important to you? Actually being closer to God or feeling like God is no longer angry with you? I crave on positive reinforcement. I like to be told, good job. I appreciate when, I mean, honestly, Amanda could probably train me like the dog. If she were to throw candy to me or, or you know, if I were to do something, I'd, I would probably respond that way. Every night when Amanda comes home, the dog knows exactly what to do. She meets her at the door where she comes in and then she runs straight to the pantry. Why? Because that's where the treats are. And she knows that if she greeted her at the door and said, hello, how are you doing? Amanda's going to give me a treat. Now, this dog is hurt. She's got a leg that she limps a little bit now, but boy, when those treats come out, there's no injury. And she's all over the place. She longs for Amanda to come home, and she just seems to know about 5 o'clock every night, it's time for me to get a snack. Where's Amanda? And she looks at me like I'm going to do something about this, which is a bad idea on the dog's part, right? I'm not going to give that dog a treat. That's not my thing. I don't like the dog. She's not watching this, so I don't care, okay? Okay. But she has this longing for attention, for affection, to be praised, to be, to be rewarded. Now listen, we should have that same longing for God's love in our life. And if we get to a place where we're just missing it, but I mean not longing for it, it's probably because we've not dealt with our sin the right way. We've mourned the consequences of our sins, but not mourned the action itself in such a way that we're disconnected from God. Do we just want God to no longer be angry with us? Or do we truly want to be close to him? Do we just want that reward? Or do we want the intimate relationship that can only come from him? And then there's just a matter of zeal. Sin doesn't just go away on its own. If we were to back up to Genesis chapter 4, God told Cain, sin is crouching at the door waiting to devour you. You must decide. You walk out that door and sin is waiting for you. And you need to decide if you're going to let it take you or if you're going to go with it willingly. If you have enough zeal, enough gust, enough energy, uh, 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 enough willingness to invest all that you can to take captive every thought, every action that you have against the sin that you are creating each and every day, to turn that over to God, then you would mourn the sin that you actually commit instead of, getting creative about how not to get caught. And that's how some of us do each and every day. And then finally, the seventh thing that we see there is restitution. Sin has a cost. For a little boy whose mom lied to him, it cost her that she no longer thought that he trusted her. When in fact, he was mourning something different. For a young man who made a lot of money and jacked up the prices of, of, of drugs and cost other people, it cost him getting into one lie into another. For a person that chops off dandelions thinking he's going to get rid of them, he's going to keep mowing them down, and his yard's going to be taken over. For David, it cost him his son. It cost him the relationship in the kingdom for people to doubt him, for his name to be immortalized for a lot of reasons, not just that he was after God's own heart, but that he also was a murderer and an adulterer, that his reputation would be forever tarnished. Restitution means that I'm willing to pay it back because it has a cost, and I'll do whatever it takes. And so I would ask you, when you look at these seven things, when you look at these seven characteristics of godly grief, if you were to just pick one of those things out, say, I'm going to work on this every time I sin, what would that be? I would tell you, certainly start at the very first one, because so many of us just excuse sin in our own lives as a bad habit or a mistake or an accident. Hit your, your thumb with a hammer and see what words come out. If those words aren't in your heart. They don't come out of your mouth. It doesn't matter the circumstances of what's going on. Get caught looking at something, buying something, doing something you shouldn't be doing with somebody you shouldn't be doing it with. It doesn't matter what it is. Your mind can go anywhere you want with that. It's not a matter of what the situation is. It's what you know you shouldn't have done. Why? Because it violated the relationship that you had with God. Restitution says that I will do whatever it takes to make up for this, up to tenfold even, a hundredfold, whatever it may be. In the Old Testament, we were told to pay back seven times, and then sometimes it said seven times seven, so 49 times. We were told to make restitution for whatever happened. In the Middle East right now, we still have laws like that that are in many Middle Eastern countries, that if you steal something, you make restitution by getting your hand chopped off. If you participate in a homosexual relationship, they take you out and stone you because according to their customs, to their laws, this is what is wrong, and this is how you make restitution for that. I gotta tell you something, even if that person dies for that, which by the way, homosexuality is a sin, it is a violation of what God's plan is, stoning that person does not make it right. It doesn't get them back right with God. It doesn't give them the opportunity to be comforted by mourning the sin that has violated their relationship with God. It doesn't matter what it is. I couldn't put anything into that sin category. But do you have enough zeal, enough enough longing for what your relationship is with God to go after sin in such a way that you mourn it like a death, that you mourn it like the relationship that you had with God is forever altered and changed. Now, does it always have to be that way? No, but here's what we do, and if you hear nothing else today, I want you to catch this one little piece right here, is that you have to kill sin at its root, not at its flower. You have to kill sin where it is and where it breathes and where it gets nutrients and where it continues to grow, not by the outside. And so many times we just want to polish up the outside. We want to make a little bit of worldly restitution. We want to say we're sorry. We want to apologize. We want to buy candy and flowers and do those sort of things. But we're not actually sorry for what we've done because we haven't dealt with God on the matter. Now, the Bible tells us that we will all stand before God at some point and be judged. And that the lamb will open up the lamb's book of life and he will call out and we will all be judged for all that we have done and how we've dealt with that. And while there is grace and forgiveness, it comes from recognizing and understanding the sin that we've created and how that's gotten away from God and how our relationship is broken down. When Paul started this letter to to the Corinthians church, this was his second letter, by the way. And you know, whenever somebody has to write you two letters, you didn't get it right the first time. And so in 2 Corinthians Uh, Chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father. This is him greeting them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. How about that? The God of all comfort, the one who is willing to comfort us and wants to comfort us, not because he enjoys our sin, but he likes when we come back to him after we know that what we've done is sinful, after we know that we have harmed him and harmed others. He wants to be the God of all comfort, verse 4, who comforts us in all our afflictions. Not just some of the stuff we do. It's one of the great mysteries of Christianity. How can God forgive a murderer, a child molester, and a liar, and a thief, and somebody who just cheats on their taxes? How can that same forgiveness be available for every one of them? Because he is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions. And so a citizen in God's kingdom who mourns is going to be comforted by him. They're going to be blessed. They're going to have a complete joy that only comes from God, but only if they recognize that their sin is death and that only God can forgive that. Do you continue on with what Paul says here in verse 4, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God, whereas we share abundantly in Christ's suffering so through Christ, we share abundantly and comfort too. Here's the good news. This is what I think Jesus was really telling us in Matthew chapter four, verse five, five, verse four. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And God wants to use each and every one of us to receive his comfort when we have dealt with our sin properly so that we might comfort others in their time as well. This is not just about everything's gonna be okay. I'm sorry you had a bad day. I'm here to cry with you. Those are important pieces. But if we are are Christians and fellow Christ followers, we can't allow other Christ followers not to deal with their sin and not be comforted for the forgiveness that comes from Christ alone. That's not kingdom citizenry. That's not what the characteristic of someone in God's kingdom looks like. It looks like someone saying, I dealt with God before on a similar issue, and he dealt with me harshly, but he dealt with me fairly, and he dealt with me squarely, and I mourned how I broke his heart, how I violated his trust. And it cost me relationships with others. It cost me financially. It may have even cost the life of somebody else. But he comforted me in all of that because he's bigger than all that. And it was hard for me, and I survived. And God wants to do the same thing for you too. Because whenever he comforted me, I understood what he was doing. It took a little bit of time. And I got past what the world was saying, oh, you'll get better in time. Time heals all wounds. It may heal all wounds, but it won't get you into heaven. And to be a citizen in God's kingdom says that I need to mourn my sin like a death. And I need to go to the great comforter, the great physician who's going to be there for me. And he's going to use the church, he's going to use the body of believers to help others not only get through that, but to see their own sin. And sometimes we just have to do that to one another and for one another. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I hope you're terribly uncomfortable in your sin. I hope that whatever sin it is that you've committed that whatever sin is in your habits, whatever whatever is separating from you, God, I hope you're terribly uncomfortable in that. I hope you deal with it in such a way that it makes you sick. I hope you deal with it in such a way that that there's something missing and you know that it's missing, that there's this longing that you need to have, that something's not right between you and your creator. Because if you don't have that level of mourning, then for me, the only alternative is that you're comfortable in your sin and it's okay. And it's just a little white lie. That's not what God has for us. That's not what being a citizen of God's kingdom is all about. Blessed, being complete joy. That's what that word means. Complete joy is given to those who look at their sin and call it death. And return back to their creator because he's going to comfort them and he's going to make everything all right by sending Jesus to the cross for them. And they accept that and recognize it in such a way that they never want to commit that sin again. With zeal and with indignation and with fear of the Lord and with restitution, they're going to make it right. Not just because they feel like they can pay it off, but because they want to validate what God has done in the world. I hope you're uncomfortable in your sin. We don't mourn that enough in our society, and we should. We should mourn what we do to God to break his heart each and every day, just like we've lost someone. Because every time we chip away at that relationship with every little sin until it gets so easy for us, we never have to do that again. Today's the day that we get to have that conversation. Today's the day you mark something down on your your connection card, or you meet me back there at the Next Step table, or you call me up this week, and let's get through that process together. But in the meantime, for the rest of you who decide that this isn't the day and you don't want to do that, I'm praying for your discomfort with as much love as I can possibly bring because I don't want you to be comfortable in your sin because that means that you are away from the relationship that God has for you and you're away from him and there's nothing comfortable about that. Nothing at all. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning and this opportunity for us to worship. We thank you for how you love us and provide for us. God, we confess our sin to you that we are sinful beings in need of salvation, in need of a Savior who is there for us, who loves us, who died for us. But God, we must also understand that in your kingdom that there is room for everyone, but not everyone's going to be let in. And so, Lord, while that sounds very exclusionary, the the truth of the matter is that only those who submit to you deserve to be in your kingdom. Only those who mourn sin like it's a death really get your comfort really deserve it and really earn that and so father for those of us who are trapped in some sort of uh, of addiction or habit or some sin that just keeps popping its head up lord I, i pray for whatever that is that we would just find one of those seven areas where we can find godly grief not worldly grief that only leads to death that you would teach us lord to submit to you in all things and submit to one another in such ways that we can just love and honor provide for you. God, I'm sorry for where I break your anybody else who needs to know that as well. Father, bless us as we continue to worship in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to continue to to stay seated there and